0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host Jonathan. Today we begin an in-depth look at the disillusion of Muslim Iberia with a heavy emphasis on North African Berbers who played a major role in Cordoba's historic rise as well as its historic collapse. Remember, we have a Patreon link in the show notes for those who wish to support this show. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates. Today's episode, episode 56, is entitled, Of Taifas and Berbers. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year, by the way, and I hope you enjoy the show. Some estimates put it at 30, some at 50, some more, some less. In reality, there isn't a soul who can firmly pin down exactly how many taifa states were created from the collapse of the Cordoba Caliphate. As soon as one minor warlord would raid a nearby village and claim a few square kilometers as the beginning of his new caliphate, another would raid one of that guy's territories, take a farm or two or five, and push the first guy's new taifa into utter ruin. Okay, so it wasn't quite that localized of a thing, but there were quite a few uh, different strongmen, for lack of a better term, who were vying for supremacy after the fall of Córdoba. As we learned on the last episode, there were a few city-states who rose above the others, for sure. With Córdoba in the south-central part of the Iberian Peninsula, Everyone else seemed to smell a free-for-all. Smaller warlords like the Taifas of Niebla, Santa Maria del Argarve, Arcos, Alpuente, Abarsin certainly dug in and made themselves known, but there were far larger Taifas that they simply could not ignore. Consisting of most of modern-day Portugal and some of western excuse me central western Spain was the Taifa of Badajoz. Right smack in the middle of the peninsula was the giant taifa of Toledo, but as big as it was geographically, it was under an equally massive amount of pressure, as its entire northern border was a vague no-man's land between them and three other Christian kingdoms. Yikes. In the northeast, Zaragoza would... Establish itself, and then spread southward over the 11th century for sure. Valencia, along the eastern Iberian coast, carved itself a nice chunk of land. And let's not forget about the Balearic Islands, including Ibiza and Majorca, were Muslim taifas in their own rights. Well, for a while anyway. Back on the mainland, around the southern half of Iberia, was where the action really was as the massive scramble for Muslim dominance took place. Taifas like Malaga, Almeria, Mercia, and Algeciras all vied for their keep, but Granada and Seville really seemed to have been the most successful. Heck, at one point in the 11th century, Seville ruled Iberia like it was the, the Muslim version of Godwin's Wessex, from sea to shining sea, you know? These were the scattered pearls from which the necklace once, at, once very recently shone its brightest, And now these pearls lay strewn across the landscape, each a little less glamorous without the splendor of its neighbors. And this may be me just being, you know, an American with my inclination towards federalism, but I find this both haunting as well as promising. The United States was founded on the disillusion of centralized power. Now, not entirely (laughs) dissolved centralized power, but uh, a, a large chunk Of central power uh, dissolved into the states. No one person or group really should rule, period. So as magnificent as the Umayyad-ruled Cordoba Caliphate was at its height, history says unequivocally that too much centralized power welcomes an unpleasant collapse at some point for some reason pushing down my initial response of shrugging my shoulders, smiling and asking, really? You really couldn't see that coming? I also look on it as something of, of beauty. Now hear me out on this. I, I understand. It was a very brutal time to be sure. And no, the people didn't revolt or, or anything. And, and no one was leading some independent, freedom-loving charge to create a government by the people, for the people and all that. But from a cultural standpoint, hear me on this, please. Speaking from a cultural standpoint, there's something to say from such a collapse. Here in the States, like many other places, we have cultural differences from region to region. I mean, it's pretty much like that everywhere, right? Heck, oftentimes it's within the same region, you'll see some distinguishing characteristics. But if we imagine the U.S. collapsing due to an unsustainably corrupt and top-heavy center, you bet that states would naturally gravitate to those with whom they share many commonalities with. We, too, would be the scattered pearls of an otherwise magnificent society. And thus, you see Iberia at its most vulnerable. These taifas, these these scattered pearls of Cordoba, had new futures to forge. And if any individual taifa refused to forge its own future, then someone else would surely do it for them. By the 1030s and 1040s, Iberia was already looking very different than it had for up to three centuries. Islam still, had, still held huge swathes of territory, and it continued to flourish in minor ways, culturally, architecturally, and, well, you know, all the things. It's the Middle Ages, and Islam was still in its golden age. Arabic was still the chosen language across Muslim Iberia, the Maghreb in northern Africa uh, was also uh, largely Arabic. And as far as the east of, east of Cairo and even Baghdad, obviously, speaking Arabic. So there was that, that continuous lineage, uh, that linguistic line still tying the, that entire southern Mediterranean era, area together. Arabic was just one of the many languages spoken in those areas, but it was without question the language of poetry and government and academia too. And if you were a Muslim, then it was obviously the language of your faith, of your religion. But just like the example of the hypothetical collapse of the United States, just like these newly independent states would begin to flourish in their own respective distinct cultures, so too did the taifas that emerged and coalesced following the collapse of Cordoba. That's the beauty I see. More Uh, individual, and I mean communities, uh, individual communities, not necessarily individual people in this regard, but more individualism uh, from a community and society standpoint, to me, is is fascinating and it's exciting because that's, well, that's diversity, isn't it? In fact, here come the Berbers. Now, with the Berbers largely taking charge after the Umayyad caliphs in Córdoba, after they lost complete control of the peninsula— Christians and Jews under the Berbers weren't exactly welcome like they used to be. So, some taifas were ruled by far more conservative Muslim North African Berbers. Others by remnants of the much more liberal, in comparison at least, Umayyads. And though they were back on their heels after the disastrously brutal years of al The Christian kingdoms to the north, as we'll soon soon see, were eagerly licking their chops in the wings. If you want a clear summation of Iberia in the decades post-Almanzor, well, that might be it. So, now these decades are basically due to the influx of Muslim Berbers, the way it all played out. Let's break from our 11th century narrative of Iberia here, and let's do a little digging to better understand what's happening. The Berbers were from northern Africa in a place known as the Maghreb. The Maghreb is a part of the northern Sahara Desert that's more or less much of the present-day nations of Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and western Sahara, to give you an idea. It's a truly massive chunk of land spanning almost two-thirds the width of the United States. And in the Middle Ages, believe it or not, it was teeming with human activity which is surprising to outsiders like myself and many listening to this podcast. I know I was surprised when I was researching all this. When we think of the Sahara Desert, we think of sand dunes and and sometimes mountain ranges and an incredibly sparsely populated area of the earth. However, and maybe let this stand as one of the foundational ideas for this season of the podcast, the Sahara Desert was actually, in reality, crisscrossed daily with thousands upon thousands of merchants, caravans of immigrants, religious teachers, mercenaries, soldiers, and arguably most importantly, at least economically, slaves. Slaves, slaves, and more slaves. The Sahara was not a dry, desolate, inactive black hole of activity in our human story. It was vibrant, and it was harsh, and it was a vast continent-wide highway of danger and opportunities and ideas for anyone brave enough, and let's be honest, brave enough to do it. And the Berbers in the Maghreb portion of the Sahara, again, that northwestern portion of this gigantic desert, these Berbers were the prime movers and shakers of the area around the turn of the first millennium. Now, if you listen to the name Berber, you can possibly, if you cock your head and squint just so, understand how outsiders saw them. There are many different theories as to what the name Berber means, or even where it came from originally, but a leading theory for centuries now comes from the ancient Greeks. In Greek, the term barbaroi referred to any non-Greek-speaking people to their north, and it was essentially a derisive term, demeaning these other languages as sounding no more civilized than, well, as John Green on uh, the, his YouTube channel um, Crash Course says, "barbar bar, 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 bar. But over the centuries, that term expanded in its breadth and scope to include the gulls of Julius Caesar's day. But it didn't stop there, though. The Romans commandeered it afterwards, even, and referred to the pre-Arab people who traversed the terribly dangerous desert as these Barbaroi, or, as it came to be known simply, Berbers. This Greek to Roman linguistic connection was so widespread, and we know that anyway, but it was so widespread that when Arabs began to move through northern Africa, they also called these groups collectively as El Barbar, the truth is, this vast collection of, of various largely nomadic multifamily communities were known by almost as many names as there were groups, but the largest and most enduring of these groups was called, and I apologize for the pronunciation, I'm just going to give it a go here, the Imazigan. And it's worth noting that even today there's a growing and increasingly influential group in northern Africa, who are on a mission to change that story, their story. These modern Imazingan are making it known that neither they nor their ancestors were Barbaroi, and that they find the term Berber reprehensible. So, no disrespect meant here on this podcast, uh, certainly, but for simplicity's sake, I regretfully will refer to the Berbers as such until the history books are changed. Otherwise, we wouldn't know who exactly we're talking about um, because this is the name they've been known by for at least a millennium. My apologies in advance, and I hope they see it through. I love it when stories get corrected. These Berbers, though largely nomadic, weren't all nomadic. Many settled in certain places and became powerful forces of influence and wealth in their own rights. For instance, places such as Uh, The city of Fez, tucked away in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, were founded, in large part, by Berbers. When the Arabs swept through northern Africa and into Iberia in the 8th century, the Berbers adopted many of these Muslim practices, but not without a fight. Innumerable rebellions and small-scale skirmishes took place against Arabic armies. Though on the surface these Berbers were Muslim, many of their traditional practices ones developed, refined, and used for centuries and centuries and centuries already were much slower to be pushed aside. It's, it's worth noting that people tend to think of Islamization and Arabization as one and the same. However, this is just a bit misleading that I've come to realize. Because Arabic is so intimately woven into the very fabric of Islam, they don't translate together exactly, though. At least not all the time. Islam tends to come first, right? Then Arabic norms, teachings, and culture. And this is how it went with the Berbers. They quickly adopted Islam, and subsequently the Arabic language, but were much slower in completely ridding themselves of their Berber ways. For lack of a better term, Berber ways. In fact, many of those ancient ways still exist today. Meaning Islam never completely overtook the Berber culture like it did in other areas. Today, between fifteen and twenty percent of folks in the Maghreb speak native Berber languages. Notice that's plural. Again, the Imazingan is one of those Berber groups, even though most Berbers are still Muslim. So they're they're bilingual essentially. But the Berbers were for all intents and purposes The Berbers were converted to Islam, and they were converted at a pivotal point in Muslim history. Essentially, the Berbers proved that for the first couple centuries of Islam, the years the West calls the 7th, 8th, and into the 9th centuries, this purely Arabic religion didn't have to stay, well, Arabic. The people of North Africa were not originally Arabic people, not a thousand years ago anyway. The Berbers changed that game. Northern Africans, having resisted for those decades and decades, as I said, again, finally did convert to Islam. And beyond that, Berbers proved that Islam wasn't exclusively Arabic. The Berbers were the first non-Arabic people to establish their own Islamic state, is what I'm trying to get at here. And this is no trivial statistic. It's no trivial matter. Christianity had already proven that it wasn't some, you know, quote-unquote desert cult, as many critics of Christianity have come to call it. Christianity had converted Jews, Romans, Greeks, Anatolians, Arabs, Egyptians, Nubians, Germans, Anglo-Saxons, Scots, Irish, French, Iberians, Italians, and, and at the turn of the millennium, it was still spreading into the Polish, Rus, and Hungarian lands. Jews had set up communities from Jerusalem to Cordoba, from London to Aachen, from Paris to the Khazars in the Asian steppes, but they never became, the Jews never became a real solid presence outside of the Holy Land due to the waves of anti-Semitic violence that overtook these areas for the last 2,000 years. Sadly, yes, all the way up to the present, um, the most diabolical of them is also probably the most obvious to us today when national socialists in Germany exterminated 6 million Jews just a short 80 years ago. But Berbers proved that Islam wasn't stopping in the Arabian Peninsula, and up into modern-day Iraq where cultural Arabs lived, predominantly anyway. No, Islam was no longer a strictly Arab religion, despite its deeply ingrained Arabic ways. As I said before, Islam had tried for a long time, roughly five decades or so, to slowly push into indigenous northern African communities. At the end of the 7th century, a Berber queen, for instance, named Diyah, I hope I pronounced that right, decisively defeated Islamic troops in modern-day Algeria. Now, and this Dia lady, the best I can tell, she was, she was a beast in her own right. I mean, she led armies into the field is what I, is, as far as I can tell. So I think that's pretty uh, a neat outlier story. However, Dia and her army were eventually killed a few years later. This would go to be the first military victory in the Maghreb for the Arab Muslims. And at the beginning of the 7th century, Islam, having become a fully capable and terrifying military force at this point, attempted to sweep into Europe through Greece, but were time and again pushed back to the deserts by Byzantine forces. And we're going to see this over the next few centuries on this podcast. In the later Middle Ages, uh, Constantinople, the Byzantines, the Eastern Romans, whatever you want to call them, these people served as the buffer Voice the buffer force between Europe and Muslim Middle East because Islam tried to get into Europe many many times, but Muslims knew the key to the world was controlling the Mediterranean Sea. Read half a page of any history book at the time, and one can deduce that much: the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans, the then the Goths, the Christians, I mean, they all controlled the Mediterranean, and therefore, they all controlled the world as they knew it for their time. So, as Greece didn't seem to be budging, it was time to get back to northern Africa and the tribes of, west, of the west of Egypt. Five decades after the defeat of Diyah, Muslims turned their attentions to Kairouan, It was a little Muslim city founded back in 670 CE by a Muslim leader named Uqba ibn Nafi. As of 750 CE, 70 years later, Kairouan would be the staging point for all Muslim invasionary missions to the west, thus growing Kairouan and making it a real presence there in the northern Sahara, north-central Sahara. It was after 750 CE that these lands were called, actually, Uh, the Maghreb, meaning west, that is, lands west of Cairo. Now, why 750 CE specifically? Well, that's the year that the Umayyad Caliphate was brutally demolished back in Syria, back just north of the Holy Land. And the Abbasids took over, first at the Battle of the Great Zab River, and then with the mass murder of the Umayyad ruling family. And when I mean mass murder, it was brutal. And here's where a little Eastern history directly affects Western history. Part of the what I hope to, to deliver on this podcast is where these two worlds constantly help shape the other. This collapse saw one Umayyad caliphate family member escape the massacre of his family and then secretly head west through some Muslim, some Berber, some Muslim Berber, controlled territory in northern Iraq and into Iberia where Berbers were already pushing through, where some Muslims were already there in a place called Cordoba. And it was this Umayyad Caliphate member, the escapee, who then took over leadership of Cordoba and set up by his grandson set up a city that would be ready for his grandson to then boldly claim as its own caliphate, that is the Cordoba Caliphate, but put a pin in that one just for a minute here. So instead of Umayyad-led Muslim forces invading the Maghreb, it was now the much stricter and traditionalist Abba- uh, the Abbasids. But there was a bit of a no-man's land between the Abbasids in the east and the Umayyads in the west, though just south of Cordoba, across the Strait of Gibraltar, was the Berber Muslim-controlled Idrisids in modern-day Morocco. And the east of them was the suzerainty of the Abbasids, called simply Ifriqia, which is worth pointing out that, as you can probably tell, uh, Ifriqia was the name used by Romans for all of Africa and is also where we get the name Africa. Now, this tenuous buffer zone allowed Cordoba to more or less insulate itself against any direct hostilities from the rival Abbasids, thus also allowing Cordoba to flourish and prosper and become, as that Christian-German nun once described it, the ornament of the world. But this buffer zone was bound to wear away eventually, of course, and the Abbasids' use use of Berbers were the key, not to mention our old turn-of-the-millennium antagonist Almanzor. On the one hand, it was a brilliant move to bolster his lines with so-called expendables, like the Berbers were to Cordobans, even though the entirety of Cordoba's Umayyad existence relied directly on one particular Berber. Quick story to the side here, I told you to put a pin in that guy who escaped. Well, here's the quick story. The founder of what would become the Cordoba Caliphate was half-Berber, as his Arab father married a Berber woman in order to strengthen alliances with the Berbers way out west in modern-day Morocco. All right, so that's the story. His name was Abid al-Rahman I, and he would be the one. He would be the escaped Umayyad caliphate. So that helped as he found his way secretly across northern Africa. Having a little Berber, uh, to his claim, certainly did not hurt him along the way, (laughs) Uh, you can imagine. So, okay, back to what we were just talking about. But what Almanzor didn't take into consideration was that the Berbers he was hiring as mercenaries to bolster his lines against his northern Christian enemies were, again, that different flavor of Muslim than the Berber residents of Iberia had become over the previous centuries. Almanzor put on his blinders, much like tyrants do throughout history, and didn't account for the age-old fallacy of one-size-fits-all, when considering individuals and individual communities. Group identities such as this is just a false equivalency that spelled an Almanzor-run Cordoba's demise. See, Almanzor's Berber mercenaries from northern Africa were more of the traditional Muslim variety, far more strict and conservative in their political, religious, and cultural leanings. And when they bore witness to Cordoba, And it's far more liberal in accepting norms and politics and commerce and policies. Well, when their numbers swelled under Almanzor, and then in the subsequent years after Almanzor's death, the chaos that ensued on the peninsula during that time, Cordoba collapses as a unified entity. All of this is happening in the early 11th century, right? Well, these northern African Berbers reacted swiftly and they reacted decisively. These Berbers from the Maghreb, directly from the Maghreb, not the Berbers who had lived in Iberia for a couple centuries already. These Northern African Berbers from the Maghreb quickly overtook places like Seville, like Toledo, like Granada, and many others. Some were successful and they rose to the top. Others were quickly ousted and overrun, but the Northern African Berber presence in Iberia, following the collapse of Cordoba, had a serious impact on any dreams of Muslim reunification on the peninsula. Iberia, between 1000 and say the 1040 CE, it was an absolute disaster. Now, lives were lived, of course. Weddings took place, families expanded. And families lost their landholdings. Businesses thrived and businesses failed. Births of children they happened as well as funerals for loved ones. These were celebrated and these were mourned. Life happened in Iberia during these four or five decades after Almanzor and the collapse of Cordoba. But any Muslim reunification was probably not in the cards during this time. And a lot of it was, again, due to the Berber presence from northern Africa directly. Again, they started as mercenaries, and then once Almanzor and his sons were done away with, and the chaos ensued, they took over in the various parts of Iberia. And this is where we're going to leave today. I know this is kind of a weird, kind of talking-at-you sort of episode... Um, but I hope there was a lot of information that we can then build upon as we go through uh, and, and kind of reconnect with the narrative of history going forward. And to think with all this information, we haven't even really mentioned the Christian side of Iberia uh, at all on the podcast so far. So I can't wait to get into that. Thank you all for listening and supporting the show. If you enjoy this content and feel that others should too, then please head over to Apple Podcast podcast addict google podcast spotify anchor or wherever you download your podcast and leave a five-star review please your reviews help to catapult podcasts to the front pages of podcast services so the more reviews this page gets the more uh five stars this this podcast gets the higher up the lists will get also, if you believe in what this podcast is doing, please consider heading over to Patreon and becoming a supporting listener. Members on Patreon are instantly treated to the entire catalog of episodes, as well as our new series for members only about the rise of Poland. On the next episode, we pick up with our story of, I- of Iberia's evolution throughout the 11th century. Until next time.